0: I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and starting at verse 17, I want to read through to verse 22. It's about the Lord's Supper. We're not observing the Lord's Supper tonight, but we are teaching on the Lord's Supper tonight. Paul writes, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, another is drunk. What? What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this, I will not praise you. Though I grew up in a non-religious Jewish home, one Jewish holiday, one Jewish feast, festival, that my family always observed was the feast of Passover. Every year during the springtime when Jewish people gathered in their families to celebrate the Passover, my family would gather at the dinner table, where I, being the youngest in the family, would go through this ritual of asking my father certain questions about why on this night do we celebrate Passover, and my father reading from a book would answer those questions. We did that almost every year. You see, even to secular Jewish people, the feast of Passover is a big deal. It's a big deal because it's a reminder that God delivered them from being in bondage in Egypt for about 400 years. The book of Exodus reveals it. It reveals that when God delivered the Jewish people from Egyptian bondage, he instructed them specifically He said to put blood on their doorposts and on the lintels of their homes so that the angel of death would pass over their homes and not judge them while he took the lives of all the firstborn of the Egyptians. And ever since that time, Jewish people all over the world have remembered this deliverance from Egypt. Therefore, Jesus. Being Jewish, he also celebrated the Passover, first with his immediate family, and then as an adult, later with his disciples. However, on the very night that our Lord was arrested, as he met with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Passover meal, he did something that had never been done before. He changed the Passover meal into a new celebration. A celebration not about physical deliverance from the bondage of Egypt, but a celebration about spiritual deliverance from the bondage of sin. And from that moment on, folks, the ordinance known as communion or the Lord's Supper, or sometimes it's even referred to as the Lord's Table, became a practice that Christians regularly observe when they come together in church. Now, most of us, most of us have been celebrating the Lord's Supper for many, many years, and so we know what to expect when we come to church to observe communion. However, for those who are not familiar with the Lord's Supper, it can be confusing, especially the first time you celebrate it if you've never seen it before. And in particular, if you are coming from a Jewish background and have been told that it's very similar to celebrating Passover. This was the experience A number of years ago, of a new Jewish believer, some of you may have heard of him, his name was Moish Rosen. He would later go on to found and be the leader of a Jewish missions outreach called Jews for Jesus. In his own words, Moish Rosen, he explains what his experience was the first time he celebrated the Lord's Supper. He says, and I'm going to quote, it's a rather lengthy quote, but I think you'll appreciate it and I'll try to keep from laughing. He says, He says, My first church services revealed an entirely new world. The music, for example, was radically different from chanting in the synagogue. All the hymns had a lilt to them, and I wasn't accustomed to Christian symbolism. They sang, There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty Stains. The cheerful, lilting melody seemed so unsuited to the graphically violent lyrics. And I didn't know who Emmanuel was, but the poor guy seemed to be making a big contribution to the blood bank. (laughs) I was as accepting as I could be, but it wasn't easy. Then I noticed that there was an item in the church bulletin next Sunday, communion. An usher in the last row had told us when we arrived the first morning that if we needed any help, we should feel free to call on him. I think he was just being polite because, as I learned later, church services involve very little conversations among the listeners. The synagogue is much noisier. Even gossip during prayers is sanctified according to the Talmud. I also had to learn not to get up and walk around because Jewish tradition permits the congregation to enter and leave at will during the three-hour synagogue service. So, not knowing any better, I said, Psst in a rather loud tone and motioned the usher over. What does it mean, communion, I asked? You're Jewish, right? He answered, it's a little like a Passover feast. My eyes must have lit up at that. The Passover Seder usually involved a rather painless religious observance and then a huge repast. In my grandfather's house, we traditionally started with chopped liver and onions, hard-boiled eggs and onions, pickled herring, and onions, and matzo ball soup, and these were just the appetizers. Next came the roast meats, poultry, kid, and lamb, and finally we had several kinds of dessert, including honey cake, sponge cake, and macaroons. Communion sounded terrific to me. How much does it cost, I asked. It doesn't cost you anything, he replied. You just contribute anything you want to in the church collection plate. That was a great improvement over the synagogue where we had to buy tickets for most of the big events, including the major holiday services, but also were assessed a regular yearly membership fee. The Bolton said, prepare your hearts for communion next Sunday, and so I asked, should I do anything to help out? Bring something? No, it's all provided, he said. Where will it be held? Right here in the sanctuary. I looked around at the old oak pews but didn't see much space for tables. TV trays had just come into vogue and I thought, well, maybe they'd fix the place up with a few of those. Seal, that's his wife, Seal and I ate a very small breakfast the next Sunday because the huge meal we expected at the service. I sought out the usher during Sunday school and double-checked with him about the time and place because I didn't want to miss anything. I suspected that being Gentiles... They would serve bacon and ham and shrimp and other things that weren't kosher, but it still seemed like a a nice idea, a real treat. Seal and I got seated in the sanctuary, and we began to sing songs about the blood again. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That wasn't too appetizing, especially since I didn't understand the real import of the words. But to top it all off, when I looked up at the front of the church, I saw on a table what looked like white shrouds with a lump where the feet would be and another lump for the head. I thought, gee, they're having a funeral today too. It made perfect sense to me that they'd be having a funeral that morning because their customs were so different from what I had known. But up to that point, I hadn't seen a dead body and I had the usual terror of such things. And what did the pastor preach on? The blood and body of Christ, eating and drinking it. I hate to tell you the thoughts that were going through my mind. I knew they couldn't have Christ up there under that shroud. And I knew deep down that, that these Gaim, that's a name, Gentiles, weren't cannibals. I decided the body was probably just being kept there and they would have the funeral later that afternoon. Psst, I said and motioned my friend the usher to come over. When are we going to have communion? I, I'm losing my appetite a little bit. Straining to be patient, he said, it'll be in just a minute. At the end of the service, eight men dressed in dark suits went forward toward the shrouds. I didn't know the difference between deacons and other church officials at that point, so I decided that they were the pallbearers. They gathered around what I assumed to be the funeral buyer and I expected that they would carry the body out before we ate. But two of them moved to each end of the covered object and I could see that they were waiting for a signal to lift the shroud. Oh no, I thought. Suddenly, the cover fell away and there was nothing underneath except some little pots and pans. Psst, what's that? Communion. Communion? I looked around and saw there were about 300 people to feed. I was totally dumbfounded. After certain prayers were said, each person was given a crumb of matzah. Then there were some more prayers and a blessing was offered over the wine. Finally, the deacons passed around little glass thimbles filled with what looked like wine. But when I drank it, yuck, it was grape juice. I couldn't understand why they called it wine. And by now, I was getting impatient. Psst, I said to my usher, When are we going to have communion? You've had it, he replied. I thought, boy, these guys they give you a crumb of matzah and a thimble full of grape juice, and then they have the nerve to call it Passover feast. Then they criticize us Jews for being stingy. All right. (laughs) So there you go. Now, tonight, as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians, we've come to the very passage where Paul instructs the Corinthians on how they should be celebrating, observing the Lord's Supper. And he does this because they were not celebrating it properly. In fact, they were terribly abusing it, they were corrupting the Lord's Supper, so much so that if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, where Paul introduces the subject of the Lord's Supper, you'll see some of the harshest words that the Apostle Paul ever wrote to a church. He said, but in giving this instruction, I don't praise you. Because you come together, not for the better, but for the worst. Now, having just told the Corinthians, if you'll recall, back in verse 2 of chapter 11, just as he was about to teach on women and head coverings, this is what he said in verse 2. He said, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. So, Paul was saying... I'm praising you because you hold on to my apostolic authority in my teaching. But now, here in verse 17, he says just the opposite. He says just the opposite. He says he cannot praise them, and the reason that he can't praise them is because he knew that when they came together to observe the Lord's Supper, they weren't the better for it, they were worse off. In other words, their meetings did more harm than they did good. Now, can you imagine a pastor saying that to his people? That when you get together, you're worse off when you leave than when you came in. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians. He told them that their Lord's Supper meetings were so bad, were such a perversion of what communion is supposed to be, that it actually did more harm to their spiritual lives Then benefited them. Now, listen, even without knowing what the Corinthians were doing at this point, that were so bad when it came to communion, the fact that Paul had such strong words for them tells us that it is possible for a church like ours to be observing the Lord's Supper, but doing it wrong doing it wrong, doing such a poor job of observing communion that if Paul were here, he'd say, you're better off not even coming to church if that's what you're going to do. So the question is, what, what then were the Corinthians doing that was so bad? Because whatever they were doing, we want to make sure that we don't do that. And that when we come together to observe communion, that we do it right and that we honor The Lord. And so, as Paul states in verse 17, he is about to give them instructions on how to conduct themselves when they meet to partake of the Lord's Supper. But before we look at Paul's instructions, it is important for you to have some background, especially in this passage, background of how the early church. Churches in the first century, how they observed the Lord's Supper because they did it a little bit differently than we do it today. And you see, without this background, without this information, you really will not be able to understand what the Corinthians were doing wrong. So to begin with, it's important to know that when the early... Christians, first century Christians, when they gathered to observe the Lord's Supper, it was customary for them, the Bible doesn't require this, it's just a custom that they embraced, it was customary for them to have a common meal together followed by celebrating the Lord's Supper. These meals came to be known as as love feasts or agape feasts because With the entire church gathered together, it was an opportunity. It was really like a potluck church dinner. That's what it was. It was an opportunity to express their love, their fellowship, their unity with all members of the body of Christ. Since young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women, they all came together demonstrating their love for one another and that all class distinctions in the body of Christ were gone. And they were one in Christ. And this love feast segued into the Lord's Supper. And in doing so, it was just a visible demonstration of their love and unity. It was a common meal together. And it would appear that all the churches at that time, and not just the Corinthians, but all the churches followed this custom of having a love feast then followed by communion. And I say that because if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and then verse 46, this is the very first church, the infant church and the the mother church, the church at Jerusalem, and they practice communion this way. And it would appear that everybody else took their example and modeled their communion services like this. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. That would be the common meal and the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Verse 46 says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So it would appear that this breaking of bread, that that was their common meal just prior to observing the Lord's Supper. And that this, as I said, this custom that was started in Jerusalem was then followed by all the local churches at that time because we read a number of years later when the Apostle Paul is in the city of Troas. This is years later. The church at Troas did exactly the same thing when Paul visited them. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we read this. On the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, when we were gathered together, Luke says, to break bread. They gathered together for this common meal to break bread and then have the Lord's Supper. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. But the point I want you to see is that years later, the church at Troas is doing exactly what the church at Jerusalem did. They're breaking bread. In addition, we read in, of all places, Jude, verse 12. Jude said, there are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. These are the agape feasts, the common meals. These are false teachers. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, double deadly uprooted. Now these, as I said, were false teachers who had infiltrated the church and they were joining believers in these common meals, in these love feasts. And Jude condemns them, condemns them for what they were doing. So these common love feasts, that was the custom, followed by all churches, always culminating then in the observance Of the Lord's Supper. Secondly, it's important for you to understand that one of the purposes of having these love feasts was to provide a decent meal for those in the church who were poor and didn't have much food. See, many of the early Christians were slaves and they were extremely poor. Of course, being slaves, they would be poor. And therefore, it's very likely that the only good meal, the only decent meal that they had for the entire week, was this love feast and here they would have a good meal because all the members of the church brought food for everybody everybody to eat with those who were wealthy obviously bringing the most and the best food it's very similar as i said to an all church potluck dinner third thing to keep in mind is that congregations back then did not have church buildings like we have so that christians met in homes And therefore, they usually met in the homes of wealthy believers simply because they had the largest homes to accommodate the the whole church. They didn't have mega churches back then. Maybe the Church of Jerusalem was very large and they met in homes throughout the city. But in most places, fellowships were rather small. Now, all of these issues, folks, the love feasts intended to express love and unity of the poor Christians eating at least one decent meal for the week at their churches. Love feasts and the wealthy of the church opening their homes for the gatherings on Sunday. All of these things factored into Paul not being able to praise the Corinthians because of the way they were observing the Lord's Supper along with this common meal. And so that's our background. That's what you need to know. And now we're ready to dive into the text and we're going to discover exactly why Paul could not praise the Corinthians concerning the way they were observing the Lord's Supper and why their meetings did more harm to them spiritually than good. And the way Paul develops his approach is by first telling the Corinthians, this is the only point that we're going to look at tonight, what they were doing wrong when it came to the Lord's Supper. He's going to expose their error. He's going to tell them he knows about it and they're wrong. Verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Now, Paul begins to tell the Corinthians why their church gatherings were doing more harm than good by addressing that here's something that's first and foremost on my mind, Paul says. In other words, this was the major problem the apostle saw with the way they were observing the Lord's Supper. He says, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist amongst you. And in part, he said, I believe it. So the main issue that was bothering Paul in relation to the Corinthians observing the Lord's Supper is that there were divisions going on when they gathered for these love feasts and then communion. Now, Paul has already addressed the issue of divisions in this church Earlier in the letter. So these divisions he's referring to here must be different because he dealt with this back at the beginning of the book. Remember, the divisions that Paul wrote about in the early chapters of this letter had to do with divisions over which Bible teachers were the people's favorites, who they were loyal to. Some said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. Paul dealt with that. However, these new divisions, they're different. They have to do with Christians gathering for the Lord's Supper. So it's different. So what kind of divisions were going on in their church meetings? And specifically, what divisions were happening at these common meals in the Lord's Supper? Well, Paul doesn't actually state what these divisions were until a few verses later. All he says at this point is that he hears that there are divisions going on in their meetings... And now where he heard this, he doesn't say. And he said that in part he believes it, meaning that he is reluctant to believe all that he's heard because he recognizes there might be some exaggerating that's going on, but he knows enough to know that these divisions exist. It may not be totally true what he's heard, but he knows enough to know that there's a reality here. But before spelling out exactly what kind of divisions that he's referring to, he tells them in the next verse, verse 19, why he's convinced that when he's heard about these divisions, why he knows they must be true. He makes in verse 19 what at first sounds like a rather odd statement. He says, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident." Among you Now, having just stated that he knows that divisions exist among the Corinthians, and it's not a good thing. It never is. Now he tells them that factions, and by factions he means essentially the same thing as divisions. He says, but they must take place. They have to take place. In other words, these divisions in a church are inevitable. Now, we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that factions and divisions in a church should be tolerated. He's not saying that at all. They should never be tolerated because if they are, they'll destroy a church. This is why so many churches have splits, church splits that cause so much harm to the testimony of Christ. In fact, Paul taught in Titus chapter 3 verses 10 and 11 that a factious individual, an individual who causes division in a church, must be confronted must be confronted with his sin, called to repent, and if he doesn't repent after he's been warned a couple of times, then he's to be put out of the church. We actually did this a number of years ago with a man in our church. But here's what Paul said in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He said, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. You just give him two warnings, that's it. He said, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Reject, he means... By reject, he means discipline him. Put him out of the church. Reject him. So the apostle, understand this, he's not condoning. He's not approving of factions in the church. He's simply saying that due to sin, they exist. That's a reality. And they're an inevitable part of church life. And note this. There's a reason that God allows them to exist. Look at the last part of verse 19. You'll see that reason So that, here's the reason, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now what does Paul mean by this? God uses these factions, these divisions, to approve of certain individuals in the church congregation. What does Paul mean by this? Listen closely. The word approved means to pass a test. This is the very word that's used to describe medals. Being tried by being placed in fire in order to prove which ones were pure, they'd place it in fire and see which ones came out pure. So what Paul is teaching is that when factions and divisions arise in a church, God uses these these factions, these divisions, to reveal who he approves of. In other words, divisions distinguish those Christians who are faithful, godly ones in the church. Those individuals who truly love their local church and want what's best for their local church as opposed to those who don't care anything about the church and may very well be unbelievers. And they don't care. They just start these divisions. They don't care. Here's the way one Bible teacher explained the benefit of having factions in a church. He wrote, Church division, ungodly and sinful as it is, nevertheless is used by the Lord to prove the worth of faithful saints. In the midst of bickering and divisiveness, they are separated out as pure gold is from the dross. Evil helps manifest good. Trouble in the church creates a situation in which true spiritual strength, wisdom, and leadership can be manifested. So, While divisions are never a good thing in and of themselves, at least, at least, because they are inevitable, at least we can be encouraged by the fact that in the providence of God, He does allow these divisions to exist in order to purify His church. So, though it can be a painful thing, it isn't always a negative thing when certain disgruntled people leave a church. Sometimes it's actually a positive thing because this may be God's way of sanctifying the church, of purging the church, of purifying the church, and demonstrating those who are approved and godly and who really indeed love the Lord and love His church. But after having acknowledged that something good can come out of something bad, a bad divisive situation, Paul now returns to the problem of the divisions going on in the Corinthian church. What they were experiencing with these divisions It was just sinful. It was wrong. That's why Paul couldn't praise them. Regardless of what God does sovereignly in using divisions to purge and purify his church, they in and of themselves were wrong. So, in verse 20, Paul states that their divisions were actually preventing them, he says, from observing the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, he said, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now this, I want you to know, we're used to hearing that, that expression, the Lord's Supper, but this is the first time the Apostle Paul has used these words, Lord's Supper, in this letter. Back in chapter 10, he referred to communion as the cup of blessing and the bread which we break. He said in verse 16 of chapter 10, "Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. It's not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ?" But here, one chapter later, in chapter 11, the apostle refers to the cup and the bread which all believers share in relation to the blood and the body of Christ as he calls it the Lord's Supper. And the significance of this designation for communion is that this is a supper that has been designated by the Lord himself. A supper in which he invites all true believers to come to his table and remember him. Remember his death on the cross on their behalf. So the Lord's Supper is a sacred event. It's a time when believers come with humility to remember Christ, to express their unity as members of the body of Christ. And then, having had a common meal together, they demonstrate their love for one another. There's unity, there's fellowship, all of that. However, This wasn't taking place at the church of Corinth. You see, all of their divisions when they met for the Lord's Supper meant that though they were going through the motions of the Lord's Supper and they were calling it the Lord's Supper, what they were observing, Paul said, is not the Lord's Supper. John MacArthur puts it this way, he said, They had the ceremony, but not the reality. The form, but not the substance. You may be breaking some bread, passing the cup, and repeating some of Jesus' words, Paul said in effect, but what you're doing has nothing to do with the ordinance the Lord instituted. Christ has no part of it. So what exactly were these divisions In the church that was causing all these problems in relation to the Lord's Supper. Well, Paul mentioned these divisions in verse 18, but he didn't explain what they were. But now he does in verse 21. For in your eating, one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. And what was happening at this church had to do with divisions concerning their common meals. These love feasts. A common meal that was taken just prior to observing the Lord's Supper. What the apostle is revealing here is that the Corinthians were divided, note this, over social and economic status between people in the church. What was happening in Corinth was that the wealthy Christians, in bringing their own food and wine to the love feast, which was fine because that's what they were supposed to do, they were supposed to do this for the purpose of sharing with others, especially those who were poor and had no food or very little food to bring. What they were doing, they were not sharing with the poor. Instead of waiting for the poor folks to arrive at church, because as I said, many of them were slaves, they couldn't leave their masters until their master said, okay, you can go to church now. These wealthy people, they consumed all of the food and the wine before the poor Christians even arrived, even entered the church, so that the rich were full, and Paul says even drunk, and the poor went hungry because there was no food left for them to eat. Now this was the division that the apostles referring to. That's why you have to understand about the, their common meals that they had before. It was a division really between the wealthy and the poor in the church. It, it was just horrible. So horrible, Paul said, I can't even praise you. You might as well stay home if you're going to do this because it was a perversion of the common meal and the very meaning of the Lord's Supper since these love feasts and the Lord's Supper were intended to express the unity and love that exists between Christians. One Bible teacher I read put it so well when he explained the purpose of these love feasts and how the Corinthians perverted this purpose, He said, Those were congregational meals stressing fellowship, affection, and mutual care amongst the believers. The emphasis on oneness led very readily into a celebration of the unifying accomplishments of the Savior on the cross. The church at Corinth, however, had turned the meals into gluttonous, drunken revelry. And when the meal was connected to the bread and cup remembrance, it was a flagrant desecration of the Holy Ordinance, Folks, that was the problem. What a far cry this was from the way that first church, the church at Jerusalem, conducted their love feast and Lord's Supper. Acts chapter 2, they should put it on the screen. Yes, they have it. Verses 44 and 45. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing, sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now here the Jerusalem congregation, they really loved one another, so much so that whatever they had, they shared with one another. But the Corinthians, sadly, tragically, they didn't do that. They were totally selfish with the wealthy ones in the church just hoarding their food so that the poor who look forward to having, I said before, at least one decent meal that week were deprived of this. So the poor went away hungry because the rich had gorged themselves on food and had consumed so much wine that they actually became drunk. What a disgraceful thing. What a mockery of the Lord's Supper. The very ordinance that was intended to demonstrate the unity of believers in Christ around his death was being used to divide believers. No wonder Paul said, I couldn't couldn't praise you. Now, we don't have a common meal before we observe the Lord's Supper, so that the wealthy Corinthians, just as as they did, we, we can do what the wealthy Corinthians did to the poor, and rightfully so, we don't have the opportunity to do that. However, it is still possible, even without this common meal, to have that same attitude as the wealthy Corinthians did, so that we can be just as guilty of being selfish and loveless as they were. You see, if, if we look down upon others in our church who don't have the same amount of money that we do or who lack in the level of education that, that we have or perhaps they come from a, another country and English is not their native tongue and they have a difficult time expressing themselves. If we look down at people for whatever reasons, those and others, because that's the way our sinful hearts respond then we have the same attitude as the Corinthians. You don't have to have a common meal to express this. It's loveless, it's selfishness, it's arrogance that thinks only about ourselves and considers others beneath us. This is nothing but sinful pride. And this is a violation of the truth that in Jesus Christ, there are no levels of division in the body of Christ no one is more saved in Christ. No one is more redeemed. No one is more accepted by God because of their ethnicity, their gender, their job, or anything else. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Galatians in Galatians three twenty eight when he said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no distinctions. Now, while we may not have the opportunity in our church to have a common meal where we share food with those who are poor in our church, we do have the opportunity. You have an opportunity similar to this. You have the opportunity to share your financial resources with the poor through what we call at Lakeside the Benevolent Fund. This is why at the close of every communion, every Lord's Supper, I mention to you about this fund that we collect And how the money that's collected, and you're so very generous as a congregation in giving this money, that all of it goes, there are no administrative fees here. All that money goes towards helping those in the church who are having financial struggles. So, in principle, when we give our money to this fund, we are doing exactly what the New Testament says to do, lovingly sharing our resources with our fellow believers at Lakeside. But that's not what the Corinthians were doing. And so having exposed, and that's what Paul did, he exposed the wealthy of this church for their selfish divisiveness and their prideful attitudes of superiority, which led to gluttony and drunkenness and a meal and an ordinance that was supposed to signify love and unity. The apostle then proceeds to rebuke the Corinthians very strongly in verse 22. He says, "What Do you not have houses in which to eat? And drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Paul expresses great indignation at the Corinthians, and the apostle asks them a couple of questions designed to condemn and rebuke their wicked attitudes and behavior. He begins by asking them, Don't you have houses in which to eat and drink? Meaning, If all you wanted to do was eat and drink, then do it at home. If that's all you want to do, then stay home. Do it at home. The church service is for worshiping God, not for consuming food and wine. In other words, if all you care about is food and drink, then just stay at home and don't come to church because the church, especially the Lord's Supper, it isn't about that. Not at all. Secondly, he asked, do you despise the church of God? and shame those who have nothing, meaning this. Do you hate the poor people in your church so that you shame and embarrass them because they have no food? That's exactly what they were doing. See, whenever you treat a brother or a sister in Christ as if they are below you because they don't have what you have, you're showing contempt for them. You're shaming them. You're embarrassing them as being beneath you. This is actually a denial of your faith because your faith in Christ says that in Jesus Christ all external distinctions are gone because Christ loves all of His people regardless of their social status or any other status. As the saying goes, all stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross. All sinners on equal ground at the foot of the cross because all come to Christ as bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt Sinners in need of his saving grace. And so, having exposed and rebuked them, Paul again states what he wrote at the very beginning of this section What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this, I won't praise you. Having declared how wrong the Corinthians have been in the way they've handled their love feasts and the Lord's Supper, Paul tells them that they will get no praise from him. Now, folks, if the Apostle Paul was this This indignant over the way that the Corinthians were mistreating their poor brethren and disgracing the ordinance known as the Lord's Supper, imagine how the Lord Jesus must feel when his people come with similar sinful attitudes when they gather at his table for communion. Think about this when we observe the Lord's Supper, and we're going to observe it this coming Sunday morning. I hope you'll never observe the Lord's Supper the same way. I hope you'll come with hearts prepared for a solemn occasion, a sacred occasion, that you come with humility, with love for your brethren, and a desire to honor the Lord Jesus Christ by remembering his death for you. But if Christ is not your Savior, then receive him, receive him now as your Savior. He died in the place of sinners just like you so that you wouldn't have to face God's wrath, God's judgment. So turn away from your sin. As we keep saying, that's repentance. Turn to Him in faith, trusting Christ's death on the cross as your only hope, only hope of salvation. If you'd like to speak to one of our pastors about this, then just see me as we now close our service. Our Father, we thank you for this very important passage of Scripture. We thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul, really your words through this dear man known as Paul. And Lord, we we pray that we will not only be enlightened about what the Corinthians did improperly, but that we will be on guard for our own hearts, guarding our hearts against ever looking down upon other believers in the body of Christ. Lord, may we continue to be a generous church to help those who are financially struggling in our congregation. May we show love. May we express unity and care and mutual fellowship. And may, when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, may, Lord Jesus, may you be honored as you look at our hearts and you see our hearts that we've come to worship you and to truly give thanks for all that you've done for us and your death on the cross. And, and then, Lord, may we come with great love in our hearts because we're one with every other member of the body of Christ. So we pray that you'll apply this to our lives. We pray that we'll never partake of the Lord's Supper the same way again. And we do pray for any here or who might be watching on live stream who they've never accepted Christ as their Savior, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that the Spirit of God would make them aware of their need for salvation, convict them of their sin, convict them of their need for mercy and grace in you, and draw them to yourself, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.